0: Listeners, welcome to the NK News Podcast. I am your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today it is Thursday, April 13th, 2023. I'm joined in the NK News Studio by Joanna Hosaniak of the Citizens Alliance for North Korean Human Rights to talk about where we stand 10 years after the Committee of Inquiry. But first, a request and a reminder to leave a review about this podcast or whatever platform you use and share this episode with everyone you think should hear it or who might be interested. And what's more, like and subscribe to the whole series second check out nknews.org where each day my journalist colleagues put out the best north korea focused journalism and a subscription for a year costs less than a dollar a day which helps to fund their work and also this podcast thirdly you can follow nknews.org on twitter and me at jackoz now to introduce my guest today more fully joanna hosaniak is the deputy director general of citizens alliance for north korean human rights she's been a staff member there since 2004 before that, she worked at the South Korean Embassy in Poland and the Helsinki Foundation for Human Rights. You can find the Citizens Alliance online at nkhr.or.kr and on Facebook by searching for Citizens Alliance for North Korean Human Rights and on Twitter at nkhumanrights. Welcome on the show, Joanna.
1: Thank you for having me. Hello.
0: Hello, it's great to have you on the show. Uh, Your organization, the Citizens' Alliance for North Korean Human Rights, is the world's oldest NGO devoted exclusively to North Korean human rights, founded way back in 1996 here in Seoul. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the history of the organization and how it came to be and what it does and, and how that's changed over time.
1: Yes, the history of the oldest organizations here in South Korea is very interesting because many of these organizations have been established by a generation of South Korean uh, pro-democracy, pro-human rights activists. And uh, this was these were activists in the sixties, in the seventies, eighties. They fought for democracy here mm. under the military rule. And uh, this is the history of Citizens Alliance as well. Our chairman and founder was one of the persons who also established Amnesty Chapter in South Korea under uh-huh. military rule. Here, fought for prisoners of conscience, supported families, uh, supported you know broadcasts internationally during the trials of some of the prisoners and supported them in prisons. Uh, And then when uh, South Korea democratized, many of this pro-democracy movement activists realized that uh, there needs to be, um, they need to establish organization uh, related to North Korea because the first North Korean refugees started coming Mm -hmm. in on the wave of hunger in North Korea. And this is the history of the Citizens' Alliance.
0: Right. And you, you mentioned your uh, founder. So tell us a little bit about uh, Benjamin Hyun-yoon, the late founder of Citizens' Alliance for North Korean Human Rights, uh, who passed away uh, 2019, I believe. Yeah, tell us about who he was and how he became the father of uh, North Korean human rights movements.
1: He was a person who was actually born in Japan to Korean parents. Ah. And in his youth, he was influenced by communist ideology. He did go to the north, and uh, before the war, before during the, the, the war, mm-hmm. before the war and during the war, he realized completely how the communist system works. He He saw many things that he didn't agree with. At the same time, he started to study theology. Mm-hmm. Later, he became a pastor. Ah. But during uh, military rules here and during problems here, he became involved in pro democracy movement here. Mm-hmm. At the same time, when in the eighties, when when he established a South Korean Amnesty chapter, he received one of the first reports of the Amnesty at that time headquarters of Amnesty in relation to what is happening in North Korea. And these first reports were written by some pro-communist activists and, and military personnel who went to North Korea to support Kim's, Kim Il-sung ah. to work on translations and so on, from Latin America, from France and other countries.
0: Right, there was the, uh, the famous uh, Venezuelan poet, yes, Ali Yes,
1: yes. And, and so... When he uh, he read the story of Ali Lameda and others, and he uh, how they were put to prison, mm. and he decided that his later path will actually include uh, human rights in North Korea. But mm. it was very difficult to find support in the South Korean society to end among the pro democracy activists to actually include North Korean human rights.
0: Right. That that was in the 1980s, wasn't it? Yes. Because there were a lot of students in the student movement in the 1980s were very pro-Juche, pro-Kim Il-sung. That's when the the Jusapa uh, arose at that time. So, yeah, I can imagine it would have been difficult at that time to get support for North Korean human rights activism.
1: It wasn't even difficult. It was overtly hostile uh-huh. environment. Yep, yep. Uh, so, so he had a, a, a lot of trouble, and, and this is why he decided to establish a separate organization.
0: Right. Now, you've been working there uh, at the uh, Citizens' Alliance since 2004. That's almost 20 years. How did you come to work there? And also, apart from you, is everybody else in the organization Korean?
1: Everyone is Korean. I am the only foreigner. Uh, And we sometimes do have foreigners, but they are interns, of course. And how I became involved. When I was born in Poland, Poland was still a communist country. So when Poland democratized, we had to choose where we, we would go to study. And most of my class went to study law and business because that was the needs after transition. Sure. I decided to do something more original and I was drawn into Japanese and Korean studies. Mm. And I ended up to study Korean at the Korean department in Warsaw. But at the time when I entered Korean department... We were the first year that was taught by South Korean professors. Before, ah. all of my friends were, let's say, taught by North Korean professors. Right. And some of our Polish professors also studied at the Kim Il-sung University. Mm. But we never discussed the situation in North Korea. So we kind of discussed southern part of the peninsula and rarely anything related to North Korea. And this was where I started searching online in the first internet and I came across Citizens Alliance Ah. and the first testimonies that they published because it was mid-90s and late 90s and I decided at that time that somehow I will get involved. It took a while. But for several years after when working at the South Korean embassy, I was also taking uh, a weekend course for a human rights activists from Helsinki Foundation for Human Rights. Mm. And when Citizens Alliance contacted them, I was chosen to be coordinator for uh, a conference that they were preparing in Europe at that time, conference on North Korean human rights and refugees. And they ended up inviting me to Seoul in 2004.
0: Now, uh, more recently, it's been revealed that uh, some North Korean workers have been working at the shipyards in Poland, in Gdansk. Was that happening at that time when you were studying there? Did you already meet some North Koreans or see some North Koreans working in Poland?
1: Yes, I, I haven't met uh, North Koreans because at that time, y- you know, these uh, workers that were working in shipyard, they were completely secluded mm. and nobody had really access to them except North Koreans. Of course, the st- Polish workers at the shipyard knew that they were working, but even them could not interact with, this, with these workers. But it was the result of the conference that a journalist that we knew started to search for connections between Poland and... Especially that, you know, in Poland at that time still uh, Socialist Party, which was kind of remains of the previous regime, operated. And many journalists suspected that there are a lot of business types of relations. And this is how this story came out first from the Polish journalist based uh, as a result of the conference.
0: Now, as you know, talking about North Korea in general and North Korean human rights in particular in the context of South Korea and in the Korean language, these are uh, politically charged acts, as we already uh, mentioned before, especially in the 1980s when the situation was quite hostile. Uh, These days, I'm wondering, where does the Citizens' Alliance for North Korean Human Rights fit into the South Korean political spectrum?
1: Uh, We are a non-political organization, uh, and so... I think there is a big misunderstanding in South Korean society and sometimes among certain scholars, uh, especially Western scholars, that somehow each organization that works here has to be related to a certain political party or affiliated and so on. As I mentioned, our founders were really pro-democratization pro-human rights uh, activists and their motto was promoting universal human rights in North Korea and especially the ones that North Korea voluntarily acceded to uh, or was obliged to kind of, you know, implement through their voluntary accession to the UN. Uh, human rights treaties. Uh, This is the same methodology that they used in the past vis-a-vis South Korea. And so we as Citizens Alliance do not associate ourselves with any religion, any party. It is unfortunate that, uh, you know, South Korea is so politically divided Mm. that North Korean human rights are usually only mentioned by the so-called pro Conservative mm-hmm. uh, and conservative party and pro-conservative kind of wings, uh, in the society, and that progressives uh, in the in everywhere in the world, when we say that someone is progressive, is actually someone who includes. Human rights right. and is tolerant, right? Mm-hmm. Do n- does not discriminate. But this doesn't happen here. This is an unfortunate situation, but that doesn't mean that many organizations are somehow affiliated with any of these governments. We tried to stay in the middle focusing mostly on internationalization of the issue were the first human rights organization that brought this issue to the awareness of the international community because uh, as you know North Korea despite the fact that they were member state of the UN for such a long time Mm. they were flying under the radar Mm. of the UN for international community for such a long time uh, without any scrutiny without impunity and uh, we simply thought that we have to publish the reports based on the first testimonies and first documents that we had access to engage UN more and UN treaties and UN bodies right. to actually start scrutinize North Korea the same as they scrutinize any other country.
0: Yeah, Now, it, it, coming back to the, uh, the left-right political divide in South Korea, it does seem, as you say, that uh, in the 1980s, well, 60s, 70s, 80s, the, uh, the progressives in South Korea were very focused on human rights and political liberalization here in South Korea. And then after that happened, not everybody, but it does seem that the mainstream of the progressives in South Korea sort of turned away from uh, applying the same principles, the same standards to human rights in North Korea. And I wonder, are you aware of, was there a debate or, or, a, or a conflict within the left in South Korea? That some said, well, we should really remain in favor of North Korean human rights. And the other said, well, you know, it's a special case. We have to leave them alone.
1: As you mentioned Jacob before some of the people that were in this progressive or pro democracy movement were heavily influenced by North Korea itself and by North Korean ideology. And so the conflict was severe because this was ideological conflict. Many of them thought that the reason why some of these people split and want to raise North Korean human rights is actually the propaganda of the South Korean authoritarian rules, how they kind of use this information to differentiate themselves vis-a-vis North Korea, yeah. and to justify they they rules, right, and and so they disbelieved many of these testimonies, they questioned them, and so the this severe conflict caused the split between uh, many activists that went to establish North Korean human rights organizations or any news-promoting organizations or getting news out of North Korea later on, and the rest that remained in the so-called progressive uh, part of the you know political spectrum, but also progressive or- organizations, because as you probably are aware, many progr- so-called progressive organizations here in South Korea do not include North Korean human rights issue. Even Amnesty Chapter mm-hmm. in South Korea for a very long time, did not cover North Korean human rights issue later on. It was done, all the reporting and all the investigations were done from London.
0: Ah, Yeah, uh, now I'm not uh, entirely sure of the, the history of, of Amnesty International, but I, I have a feeling, it, 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 to me, it seemed in the early 2000s that Amnesty Worldwide wasn't focusing very much on North Korean human rights, not just here in South Korea.
1: Yes, that's true. But the first reports that came out, very limited reports, actually came out from Human Rights Watch or before that it was kind of, you know, Minnesota lawyers Mm -hmm. and this type of organizations that later went under umbrella of Human Rights Watch and Amnesty. That was the only type of reports, even no matter how brief, Mm. uh, related to human rights situation in North Korea.
0: Does Citizens Alliance call for regime change in North Korea? (laughs)
1: <laughs> no of course not uh we we do believe that you know people people have to choose their path and so this is up to people in north korea how will how they will decide their future however in deciding their future they also have to be aware of the violations that are happening to mm. them to kind of give them a name you know and and so we also promote let's say we would like the north korean government to embark on a path of some form of reforms where human rights situation will start to be protected and so we view our uh, work as kind of putting pressure on north korean government Mm -hmm. international pressure to actually start changes inside the country how they do the changes is up to them Mm. however it is it is obvious for everyone that the situation cannot continue in, in, in this way. The, the the state, the whole state is based on the system of slavery, uh, kind of feudalistic type of economy. And this, that, that is using human chattels, you know, to produce uh, welfare for only the privileged and the elites. This has to change. This is outmoded version of operations. And North Korea being a part of a system where you know, they voluntarily acceded and recognized universal principles, they need to start to implement these universal principles on the ground.
0: What's the uh, relationship of the Citizens' Alliance for North Korean Human Rights to the South Korean government, in particular the Unification Ministry? Is there liaising going on?
1: As, as I explained to you, the liaising is always on and off depending which organization is, uh, which government and which government administration is in power. Mm -hmm. Whenever there are progressive governments, pro-engagement governments in power, there is limited contact or during Moon Jae-in administration there were attempts to close down some of these organizations as you know Mm. Uh, especially organizations that were broadcasting or sending information to to, uh, North Korea but we also as Citizens Alliance were included in this uh, type of investigations that ministry was doing and they were threatening that they would not renew our license unfortunately in South Korea the situation is that all of the organizations Organizations, NGOs, unlike anywhere in the modern world, democracy kind of democratic countries, they have to be registered under the ministry, which is related to the area of operation. Mm-hmm. So if you work on North Korean human rights, you have to be registered under Ministry of Unification in order to also, um, for example, issue tax benefits right. to donors, yep. to private donors. And, uh, and this was, you know, the threat. Uh, they asked us to reveal the whole base of the individual donors, mm. of our beneficiaries and so on. And we declined. And we also submitted the uh, general allegations against South Korean government, Moon Jae-in government, to UN, to, to several UN bodies. And the UN took action and was discussing this with the South Korean administration at that time. And recommended changing of this law, the fact that the organizations have to be registered provides opportunity for many administrations to actually manipulate these organizations or somehow threaten them. Mm -hmm. And they should be independent, as they are independent anywhere else in Western Europe, in, in United States, and so on. So. In terms of, for example, monetary support, we declined all the mini- financial report from any of the ministries and have been receiving the support from individual donors and from abroad, from uh, foreign grants.
0: I have relations with the government improved since uh, President Yoon took office last year?
1: Well, President, President Yoon uh, does speak about North Korean human rights and, and so we do have more contacts. However, the context doesn't mean, of course, that we are somehow related to the government. We mm-hmm. always try to criticize the government. And we, our vision is that if the government that is including human rights is in power and there is a way to improve certain, let's say, policies to in terms of awareness of North Korean human rights situation or how Nor- South Korea is resettling, Uh, North Koreans here, because there are many problems in the system uh, itself, then we view it as an opportunity to kind of criticize or or work with the government Mm. to change that system. But we view ourselves as an NGO, and NGO is a watchdog, meaning that no matter which, organization, which, no matter which administration is in power, we are supposed to criticize the government yeah. if there are issues that come up and are uh, you know, not included by the administration.
0: Now, from its early days, the Citizens Alliance held annual conferences uh, internationally in a range of cities around the world. And the last of these, I think, was held in March 2013, 10 years ago. Is that right?
1: Yes, that's, that's true. It was in Berlin and it was the last, org- uh, the last conference that we did because at that time already the UN Commission of Inquiry that we lobbied for, advo- mm-hmm. advocated for, was established and we realized that our mission wa- has ended in a way.
0: Uh, ten years later, is it time for another?
1: Another conference? Another
0: international conference, yes. Uh, I mean, the mission still, the work is still going on.
1: You know, I think that after, I mean, after Commission of Inquiry, there is such an awareness mm. about the situation inside North Korea and uh, of North Korean refugees that I don't think that these conferences add much. Uh, they probably only keep the flame mm. and awareness uh, among international Um, community, but in a way they cannot add anything new. Like in the past when, you know, the media were not talking about the issue, where many uh, governments did not realize how severe the situation is, this is complete change uh, in in the international kind of understanding of the North Korean human rights issue. So I think it's not... um, uh, whether we do conference or not, it, it it would have different purpose, I would say, at this point. I think at this point, more than the conferences, we have to focus on how to advance the COI recommendations 10 years after, because none of mm-hmm. them were in advanced.
0: Yes, and we'll definitely talk about the COI a bit more uh, later on. First of all, a couple of critical uh, views here. Uh, before COVID, uh, it used to be that many North Koreans went across the border into China, doing some trading, looking for food, etc., of those, of the large number of North Koreans who went to China, most of them never uh, came to South Korea, as far as we know, and and most people in North Korea never tried to leave it, and this leaves some critics to suggest that maybe it means North Koreans are happy in North Korea, or at least happy enough that they don't try to leave. And if they do leave, they don't try to come to South Korea. And I wonder what you think of that reading, and are there alternative possible readings?
1: It is very difficult for us to know what is what the situation in North Korea is like right now. And there are very conflicting reports coming out depending whom you talk to. And so people who were reliant on market economy, especially Changmadang system, because it has faltered to a certain extent, uh, I think they uh, do have certain trouble with accessing not only with trade, but also a lot of private citizens have problem with accessing some of the necessities. However, you know, that situation also depends on uh, whom you talk to and in which region, because there were still regions where uh, this type of private economy Mm -hmm. operated. And I talked to some of my students who actually... Uh, showed me the the recording with uh, they for example family members inside North Korea during during covid asking whether they received for example money and whether they are able to buy food and so on and they were able they they were saying that the food is limited but if you have money you are still able to find some of this you know necessities
0: when you say money i mean are we talking local north korean money or does it have to be hard currency hard currency, currency
1: always okay. always so hard dollars currency or rent- the or yen, yeah. yes are, uh chinese and so but the the problem is that you know North Korea for such a long time has been reliant on this private economy Mm. because it does not provide the necessities to majority of the population, only to the elites, right? And so, which means that majority of population was reliant on some form of private activities, trade, you know, this unofficial trade across the border with China. With that being closed, we are aware that the situation must be Deteriorating unless the regime has enormous resources and was receiving enormous rep- uh, resources from elsewhere during that time, let's say South Korea and China and Russia, in order to still support the society. However, I think the full picture that we will have will be only after opening the borders. And I think this borders opening will have to happen because I don't think you can keep population like you know sardines in the mm-hmm. can for a very long time especially where when your economy is so dysfunctional and especially when north korean economy really relies on the extortion from the society they have to contribute a lot of goods which are being turned to export all types of mushrooms aronia you know and uh, um, minerals and so on all this production is going for f- so called foreign fa- currency re- earning mm-hmm. uh, which I is then, let's say, the elites benefit from that and the military benefits from that. So without it they are unable, you know, the the population will be unable to probably provide that for the North Korean government. And that also means that the border will have to be open at some point. But in relation to your question, why many of them did not escape, because China was implementing this zero COVID policy, uh, most of the network helping North Koreans in China has broken down. And so uh, many organizations were unable to help North Koreans. So we we knew that some North Koreans stayed in China. It was impossible to move to South Korea. So what we have heard is that majority of North Koreans that came during COVID were actually the foreign workers, for example, the ones from Russia. Mm.
0: Now, I've met people in South Korea who are on the, uh, the progressive left who argue that uh, North Korean defectors' accounts of hardships and abuse in North Korea cannot be believed because there's too much incentive to to lie or to exaggerate their claims. And how do you respond to that?
1: Well, I I would say that's... uh, So, then why do we believe testimonies of uh, South Korean progressive groups and what has happened here during military rule? I mean, this is mostly based on testimonies of people and their families, right? Mm -hmm. It's the same kind of story. Why do we believe people in Syria, in Bangladesh, in Congo, in Myanmar? You know, not everything can be recorded majority of, if you look at the, at the kind of justice system that was established, let's say post-Rwanda, post-Yugoslavia, the courts themselves, the ad hoc tribunals, the bloodline of the tribunals were testimonies of people, not any kind of exhumations, mm. not any type of even photographic evidence, because there was almost none, almost none. Uh, this is always based on testimonies of people. And the, this is where you have to cross-check the, the information. And so many organizations receiving these testimonies, they are aware that first and foremost, people's memory falter. When, when time passes by, they might you know include things that they think they saw Right, Mm. They might confuse certain dates or certain facts because if you have, for example, let's say 20 years have passed, that is natural. That is what is happening to every human being. However, I would tell you that this is also studies that are conformed by many doctors and psychologists. If you have very traumatic testimony, you will remember that even to the point that you remember the date. And when I talk to many North Koreans, when they talk about traumatic experiences, they even remember the time of the day and the date when it happened. Mm. That is where where our brains store this kind of traumatic yeah. versions. And yes, when they are exposed to a lot of torture, this is when the facts may become blurry. Because, you know, in a way... Human brain tries to dissociate themselves from pain Mm. and from, you know, what they are experiencing. And these testimonies may not be full. That's natural. That happened also to Holocaust victims. And Holocaust victims were also questioned very often. But that's what happens when you have these traumatic testimonies. Our role as NGO is to cross-check as many of these testimonies as possible and then at some point you see the trends you see that person in town a in village b in uh region uh you know north hamgyong and south Kamgyong, they are telling you similar stories Mm. this is where you are looking for patterns and patterns are patterns are you know are it's it's what we use in crimes against humanity in our approach, looking for patterns of crimes and then establishing what was the intent, what was the, you know, knowledge of these people who were committing this type of patterns of crimes. And whenever there are problematic testimonies, we put them aside. For example, I will tell you one example. I had some testimonies related to Um, You know, North Korea is developing uh, biological and chemical weapons. Mm -hmm. But these weapons, we know that from history, also from other military, have to be tested on human kind of experimentation, Mm -hmm. right? And so there were testimonies from North Korea talking about special hospitals that are testing this type of biological, chemical weapons on people with disabilities, I cannot confirm this because many of these people have died probably, right. if it's true. And also people who are involved in this type of experiments, if it's true, they are also did, did not uh, come out or might, not, might never come out. Mm. So we put this type of testimonies aside so, and, and record them so that if in the future something comes up, then maybe we will be able to cross-check them.
0: In 2018, Cambridge University Press published a book called uh, North Korean Human Rights, Activists and Networks, in which you wrote a chapter entitled NGOs as Discursive Catalysts at the United Nations and Beyond an Activist Perspective. Uh, And in that chapter, you write that the uh, DPRK had acceded to some of the human rights treaties, the uh, UN human rights treaties, even before uh, it became a full member of the UN namely the uh, International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights in 1981. Uh, what does this mean? Does it mean that North Korea recognizes that its citizens have civil and political rights as well as economic, social and cultural rights? How, I'm interested, how does the North Korean government itself interpret this? And, and why did it join? or Why did it accede to those covenants?
1: At the time when North Korea was joining these treaties, and mind you, they joined uh, earlier than South Korea mm. even, right?
0: That's interesting. Uh,
1: th- they uh, were looking for ways to justify their regime. And so they wanted to be recognized at, uh, at the UN level as the only kind of Korean government.
0: Right, uh, the true Korea. The
1: true Korean government that uh, is entitled to the whole Korean peninsula. Right. Uh, And there was a lot of friction between ROK government and DPRK government and supporting, let's say, governments that were supporting both of the governments, which government should represent uh, Korea as a state. And so North Korea did accede to these treaties earlier on to show that they are kind of, you know, legi- legitimate power mm. and that uh, they are the ones that will be implementing all these human rights changes. the The reason why they exceeded to to these treaties was that you know North Korea does not have civil society and so they knew that no type of scrutiny will come from mm-hmm. civil society as it does always with any country around the world and they probably have seen that even you know the most kind of totalitarian or authoritarian countries you still have groups uh, of either people who are outside of the state that are active or inside that were traveling to the UN to actually inform international community of what is really happening on the ground. Right. North Korea does not have it. ROK at that time uh, had a lot of problems because they had very active civil society. Mm-hmm. So the reason why they were not uh, accessing, acceding to these treaties was that they were very well aware that immediately the pro-human rights Organizations here yep. would challenge them at the international community level, right. and and so you know that was the the kind of motivation for North Korea to accede to all these treaties originally. Then uh, both ROK and DPRK were uh, were admitted to the UN in ninety one at the same time on the same date. That was the agreement.
0: Right, because first I think for a long for decades each of them said only let us join, don't let the other Korea join. Exactly. Uh, and then finally they came to some agreement. During that period of rapprochement between North and South Korea, we'll both join on the same day. Yes. And that way it's fair to everybody. Yes. Right.
1: Yes. And, and, and so, you know, South Korea, when it started uh, its process of democratization, it started acceding to many of these treaties, so did uh, North Korea. But I think for North Korea for a very long time, this was a very safe game they knew that nobody will really scrutinize them. And the the way that the scrutiny worked was that they presented their governmental reports mm-hmm. where everything was perfect in the country and nobody else could challenge that because there was no information even at the UN level among the independent experts and so on to actually get such independent information from. But this then changed when Citizens' Alliance was mm. established and when we started to challenge North Korean government and started to produce first reports based on the testimonies of of uh, people who escaped, bringing especially, you know, uh, an information about the political prison camp system. Yep. That started changing. And then they've realized that they have a problem, mm. that... Uh, and, and so the first thing that they did, after one of the first report that Citizens Alliance did with one of the international organizations, this was challenging them actually on civil and political rights and ah. economic rights. They said, oh, we are withdrawing from mm. this covenant. Mm. Uh, and the UN system said, no, no, there is no way. Once you entered, and once you are member state of the UN, this is kind of tacit approval that yeah. you approve... And you agree with the universal values as a member state. And so... uh if you acceded to these treaties, there is no way out. So what they did is that they stopped uh, submitting reports on the especially, you know, civil and political rights are problematic for them because Mm -hmm. there are no civil and political rights. uh, In terms of socioeconomic rights also. So the only kind of scrutiny that that they did later on was on CEDAW convention, the convention that is looking into discrimination against women and uh, Committee on the Rights of the Child, the Covenant on the Rights of the Child mm-hmm. and um, and especially post COI uh, you know for a very long time they also stole these reviews they stopped um, collaborating with with the UN system and they stopped also issuing reports on women's and child's situation but post COI the only reports that they submitted, was immediately they submitted a report on women and on children, Mm. and they went through another review in 2017-2018.
0: What is the uh, universal periodic review process, and why does North Korea prefer this to submitting reports to the various UN committees on human rights?
1: Universal periodic review is a type of uh, a new type of scrutiny that uh, human rights council. Before we had human rights commission. When the human rights council was established, many states, which do have a lot of problems on the ground, uh, said that you know, this type of picking of certain uh, governments and certain countries mm-hmm. and naming and shaming is not appropriate for the UN as a whole. So let's establish the universal periodic review when all of the peers, meaning all of the member states of the of the council at that time, and the council rotates, 47 members, uh, will be able to kind of question the state on the situation on the ground Mm. the reviews are very uh basic i would say uh because they are so short and they they can't go
0: into a lot of depth
1: they cannot go into a lot of depth and because these are diplomats that question Mm. that provide these questions they also you know cannot scrutinize really uh the situation on the ground the type of question that experts independent experts who have knowledge uh, or on certain issues may ask during the review of the committees, it's uncomparable to what is happening at the Universal Periodic Review. Mm. And this is why North Korea prefers that, because it's very basic kind of review. Even, But having said that, they still had a problem with Universal Periodic Review, because in 2009, during the first review, they actually rejected all of their recommendations. And and so, you know, one of the reasons why... Uh, United Nations Commission of Inquiry was established was this pattern of North Korea non-cooperative attitude with the UN system. This was the only country, I don't know if many listeners uh, realize, the only country that does not collaborate with the UN. Even Myanmar and other countries do Mm. invited, you know, independent experts, field finding, fact finding missions to their country. This is the only country that does not collaborate even with special reporters, not on their country, on on situation like on food and so on. It's been only post-commission of inquiry that they invited, for example, special rapporteur on uh, persons with disabilities and and so on. But in in general, they remain non-cooperative.
0: Yes, so uh, uh, let's move on to the the COI then. So on the 21st of March uh, 2013, uh, which is, what, uh, 10 years and a month ago, the United Nations Human Rights Council, composed of the 47 nations, as you mentioned, established the Commission of Inquiry on Human Rights in the DPRK with Resolution 22-13. Briefly, how was it possible to get support for the COI within the UN Human Rights Council, and how important was the timing?
1: The timing was important because uh, China and Russia was not part of the... we were not member states of the Human Rights Council at the and time. And either
0: one of them could have blocked it if they'd wanted to.
1: They want, uh, yes, they could have blocked it. But we still were aware that there were many countries that China and Russia used mm-hmm. for the support, and these countries could block it as well. So, you know, let's say Venezuela or Cuba mm-hmm. could also um, uh, ask for a motion on a vote and, and somehow block it. However, the timing you know we have been preparing for commission of inquiry for a long time yeah. because we have realized as a civil society i'm saying that both south korean victims organizations abductees victims organizations political prisoners associations the international organizations as well that that started covering uh, north korean human rights issue we've realized that the mandate of the special rapporteur does not really highlight the full depth of the situation inside North Korea. This is just a yearly update Mm -hmm. and countries like Syria and Sri Lanka at that time and so on receive much more attention because there is so much more information coming out, Mm -hmm. including visual information, which we don't have from North Korea. Right. Mm. We don't even have civil society that could really secretly record what is happening from time to time. Yes, we do have this secret footages coming out, but that's all right. And, And so this information is very limited at the same time north korea was uh you know it was a post first nuclear test north korea was kind of expanding its military mm-hmm. uh investment and uh threatening countries in the region so both uh this type of military posture and non-cooperation with the un system resulted with the international community and interestingly, the countries that normally supported North Korea being tired to support North Korea—that's mm-hmm. what happened. And and uh, and so you know, it it was still difficult to convince countries that normally have this penholder position, like EU countries and Japan, at that time. Right. Right now, it's only EU uh, EU member states, but uh, to include the language. But there were several. Uh, initiatives taken at that time. One was special reporter at that time Marzuki Darusman issued a report. He highlighted what special reporters have found and what international community should focus on in depth. If such inquiry is established and uh, Citizens Alliance um, also went to meet with Navi Pillai at that time, High Commissioner for Human Rights, to ask her for support, uh, to, to actually tell her that this is the UN system that they were established to actually monitor human rights. Most of the international community focuses only on nuclear or military issues, and they don't link them to the violations on the ground. And this is where she also issued a statement post that meeting uh, that this kind of uh, inquiry is long overdue. And so this um, resulted in many EU states and other states that are like-minded to support uh, the language and to establish the Commission of Inquiry.
0: Now, almost a year after the establishment of the Commission of Inquiry on uh, 7th of February 2014, the report of the Commission of Inquiry on Human Rights in the D- Democratic People's Republic of Korea was released for general distribution. Uh, in your uh, book chapter, you wrote, the Commission's 2014 report on human rights abuses in North Korea caused a discursive shift in the interna- on the international level toward accountability. And I'm wondering, 10 years later, what has fundamentally changed and what remains unchanged?
1: I think that shift toward accountability is visible. And this is where a majority of NGOs are focusing their resources on. Uh, preparing for some form of accountability. Whether this is a judicial process as we understand accountability, for example, criminal uh, responsibility of people who were involved in the crimes. And I'm not talking only about the top leadership. I'm talking also about the Mm mid-level of uh, violators, let's say, commandants in the camp, people who are running companies attached to Ministry of State Security and Ministry of Police Safety and so on that actually take resources from these detentions and how they export it. All of these people may face uh, a criminal responsibility in the future. And this is where the international community also uh, started to Uh, really channel the resources, but also a lot of organizations that we normally did not have access to in the past, such as, uh, for example, legal community that was involved in many trials, Mm -hmm. uh, international trials or international investigations, wanted to uh, provide the expertise to NGOs t- in order to improve the methodology of how this evidence can be admissible in mm. future courts.
0: Be more rigorous,
1: Re- more rigorous, uh, r- rigorous, and also you know uh, how how to store it, right? right? How to provide protection for the victims, mm-hmm. what type of information you have to provide to perpetrators so that they do not incriminate themselves mm-hmm. without having access to legal assistance mm-hmm. yet, right? Uh, and so on. So this, the, these are the types of, of assistance that is available right now. And I think that that expertise really uh catapulted many ngos to uh, a kind of very high level very high standards of like how they gather the evidence right now including how we are able to cross-check that evidence Mm -hmm. vis-a-vis satellite imagery uh, and what victims show us on the satellite photos how we are able to use um let's say similar um uh, approaches that were used in other countries, let's say Bangladesh and, and other countries, where uh, connection was done between trade and human rights violations and how, for example, targeted sanctions system is used against individuals and companies involved in these crimes and production of this type of production. So all of this expertise is available to us. So I, I see that shift mm. expanding. What has not changed is that we were unable to really uh, move this process forward in terms of accountability. Uh, As you know, one of the main recommendations was either referral of the DPRK to International Criminal Court or establishing of ad hoc tribunal and because the geopolitical situation has changed because china has also a lot of problems that were highlighted at the un uh, level let's say situation in xinjiang the hong kong issue right taiwan tensions right now this changed the uh, kind of us uh, china dynamic o- also china's tacit support for russia's aggression vis-a-vis ukraine mm. this really uh, kind of stalled the un security council mm. the referral because North Korea is not party to the uh, Rome Statute, could only happen through the Security Council right now. Uh, and, And so there has to be other ways devised of how to move this process forward, or whether, you know, to establish any other form of accountability mechanism, or the ad hoc tribunal, which was also recommended by Commission of Inquiry. Uh, And this is something that has not been moved forward yet, even 10 years after.
0: I'm curious, does the uh, Citizens' Alliance have uh, a rough um, number of people who are believed to be held in prison camps located throughout North Korea? Uh, and and are all these believed to be political prisoners, or does it also include non-political crimes such as people imprisoned for theft and murder, etc.?
1: The criminal system, criminal kind of, or let's say the detention system in North Korea is divided into several levels. You have uh, a pre-holding center kind of holding centers and investigation centers for those who are repatriated from China. You have secret prisons of the MSS and MPS. You have then kind of normal type of prisons. And in normal types of prisons, uh, they are called which means uh, re-education through labor, Mm -hmm. kind of type of detention, is where you have both uh, persons who might have um, escaped North Korea and in that sense committed some form of political crime, right? Because uh, escape from North Korea without uh, uh, permission is is forbidden. they might be repatriated to and and then punished in these prisons. You also have in these prisons a kind of criminals. Let's say someone who murdered someone, mm. who who raped someone, and so on. Political prison camps are completely separate. Ah. You don't have normal criminals there. It's all about political crimes. Uh, And however you define these political crimes, it can be anything, Mm -hmm. of course. And we know that some of these camps did have included three generations of the family, right? And that some of these camps had re-education zones when member families, not the main criminals, but member families could be released after some time now post commission of inquiry there have been a lot of changes in political prison camp system and mm. a lot of these camps have been closed or uh, removed uh, and relocated to other areas. This is probably what you know. the scrutiny has caused, that they started to relocating some of this because the evidence was already available, including on satellite photos. Right,
0: that's something you can see through the photos. yeah. Yes,
1: uh, but uh, you also have to understand that political prison camps and all of the detentions, other detentions like short-term detentions, kiohoasos that I mentioned, are the foundations also of the economic system for North Korea. They are based around the areas that can produce either minerals for export or some other forms of production that will be exported by the companies mm. of MSS and MPS or other companies that trade with them. Everything is interrelated in North Korea. And so... Are uh,
0: so you're saying that the prisoners are a source of free labor?
1: Yes as it was in Soviet Union, for example, as it is in, with Uyghurs in, in China, this is the same type of operations that uh, exist. And so, um, y- you know, the camps are also relocated where uh, two areas where there is uh, new minerals are have been found mm. or uh, for example resources of coal has been depleted, anthracite in some of it and they are looking for new resources of of coal for export. This is where camps are also relocated to and, and so we have to understand that this is not only the result of international scrutiny, it's also how North Korea is producing, y- how how the economy is functioning. And, and and so this is these are the changes to the system. To answer your questions, we don't know. Mm-hmm. We know that the because they were relocated, uh, um, we haven't been able no. to secure some of the new testimonies from people who have been relocated to to other areas. And so there are there is information that some of the Camps have reduced in size, however, I have to I have to say one thing. we have been observing Camp eighteen, which is a camp uh, in Pukchang, not far away from Pyongyang, mm-hmm. uh, and this is a camp that normally produces a lot of anthracite coal mm-hmm. that is going through the train is connected to Nampo right and and can be exported. This camp was reported to reduce in size. However, when we were conducting our investigation uh, with the prisoners in this camp on how much is being produced that is not being included even by UN sanctions committee, this type of numbers that the camps are producing, We've realized that the camp was expanding its boundaries, and this coincided with the Moon Jae-in's administration meetings with uh, Kim Jong-un, mm. and also President, former President Trump's meetings with Kim Jong-un. It was there were also reports at that time that North Korean traders were uh, acting in China to try to sell this coal. They were preparing. You know, one of the main uh, condition in Hanoi was to lift sanctions on coal in their totality. Ah. That was f- what failed, but they were already preparing to actually uh, sell even mm-hmm. more. And w- this is where we saw that the camps were actually expanding. Mm. And our experts, we we discussed experts who are experts on mineral and coal production, and they said that they are not conducting. Let's say they are not. Um, Expanding the piles of coal in width, but in height, mm-hmm. they were able to cross-check that on satellite photos, and that the, they are increasing actually in production. Right. Uh, so that is, you know, this is one warning where we kind of do not look. At, we normally look at the humanitarian situation just of the normal population. We don't understand how this type of reapproachment policies. And opening the trade may harm people on the ground. How slavery system can be expanded mm-hmm. because they are looking the, at this at the, as an opportunity to earn more money simply with the with the lift of the sanctions. So this is one, uh, or, you know, warning that uh, that I want to kind of you know say here. And also the fact that at the same time there were reports of increased. Uh, shortages of electricity in North Korea. That was interesting to us because if you have sanctions operating and so much coal that not only by us, but also other think tanks that were observing the same situation of increased coal production elsewhere Mm -hmm. as well, you should have more supply domestically, right? Mm -hmm. And yet it, it wasn't happening. Uh, the, the schools, the hospitals still were un, you know, unable to get coal and there was uh, shor- shortages of electricity even in Pyongyang. That tells us a lot how the system is functioning and this is what international community should look into, especially when looking into political prison camp system as this is part of the economy of North Korea. Right.
0: Uh, now we only have about 10 minutes left so I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions and ask for very, very short answers if you could in 2010, I visited North Korea as a tourist, and I picked up a book that I saw there entitled The Human Rights Situation in South Korea, written by the DPRK Institute for the Research of Human Rights. Have you heard of this book or the institute that authored it?
1: <laughs> no, no, sorry. It was, it
0: was published in 1993, and I glanced through it, and it was a collection of many stories about bad things that happened or allegedly happened in South Korea. And what, what I found was most interesting was that the, uh, the source documents cited in the book were almost all South Korean media. So, for example, Hangyeore, the left-wing magazine Mal, uh, the magazine Dari, uh, South Korean Radio, even the Wolgan Choson is cited as a source there. Uh, The rest of the quotes come from, uh, quote, South Korean pamphlets, so it's hard to know the reality behind those. But it's interesting that the publishers of this book didn't think that it was a weakness to show that South Korean media is allowed to report on allegations of human rights violations that take place within South Korea. Uh, Do you have any any thoughts or comments on that?
1: I think this is general with this type of uh, regimes. I, I remember the same thing that happened in Poland they do not realize that the way they try to criticize international community actually reveals their weaknesses. Mm -hmm. And I think this is, you know, the, the propaganda regime functions as such that they think that this is actually contributing to propaganda of, let's say, how bad the situation outside is, but it might have opposite effect. And this had opposite effect also in former communist countries in Central and Eastern Europe. So I think, you know, also the coverage later on in North Korea for example uh let's say the how people demonstrated mm. against um, at that time this was uh the you know the meat the you know, the import oh, of the beef, US beef right y- yeah. y- you you remember mm. this this is all showing and when you talk to north koreans if they have seen this kind of photo or a report in North Korea yeah they do say that what struck them was that oh you know how these people are able to go out on the street and protest right. against government, yep. right? Yep. Especially those that had some, let's say, independent uh, evaluation of what is happening. So I, I think that in general, this system do not understand the, how it may have adverse effect on the population.
0: Continuing about uh, Central and Eastern Europe and former communist countries, so how, I'm curious, how has transitional justice proceeded in former communist countries of Europe? And, and what can we learn from that for North Korea?
1: Many of these countries established very particular type of transitional justice system. Uh, Germany and Czech Republic. Uh, Embarked on that very early on, post transition. Poland embarked on that 25 years after. Uh-huh. The reason for that was that there was a roundtable agreement with the Solidarity. And part of the agreement, as we understand it now, was tacit, kind of giving tacit amnesty to those who at that time were, you know, in power, the yeah. communist uh, government. And so, however, the voices to kind of Finish the so-called revolution, the peaceful revolution, the peaceful transition, were present in the society. And so the government, you know, embarked on that uh, much later on. Um, There are similarities in all of this system. So, for example, the scrutiny of the persons that were involved in, that are competing for the major national posts and the background, the so-called vetting system. Uh, This this, uh, was one of the major features. In terms of criminal proceedings, if you look at most of the countries, except for Yugoslavia, when they killed uh, their president, there were no criminal proceedings against the top level of the uh, leadership. At the, at the time. Mm. However, there has been proceedings uh, against the mid-level of, let's say, judges who are, for example, um, issuing death penalties on, on on certain persons that were obviously political criminals or uh, guards who are shooting, right? So these, these people, uh, you know, sometimes were too old to serve sentences. Uh-huh. Some of them do serve sentences. One thing that in this transitional justice is common across these countries is the memorialization. Mm. Kind of giving a, a, a clear message of what it was wrong and what is right, because if you build the society based on democratic values, the society has to understand that certain behavior is a crime yep. according to international standards. It's unacceptable, and this is how the society learns also. And this is what enters, you know, the education, the publication. This is very present in schools, you know, and in other t- forms of memorialization. The kind of giving back, let's say, names to the nameless victims, exhumations that are going, for example, in Poland and so on. This is all kind of the process is continuing. Right now, we, are, uh, we do have a program for South and North Korean students and we've been carrying that program for the last couple of years, uh, I think five years, uh, that uh, the students visit actually Poland, Germany, mm. uh, The Hague, and they learn about these processes.
0: And uh, it seems to me that the, the longer North Korea continues in this way, the more difficult any process of transitional justice might be, since so many people at so many levels are in some way complicit with the system.
1: And, and so it's impossible to really put to justice everyone. Mm. This is not how it works. If you look across the examples around the world, the these are usually symbolic trials. Mm-hmm. and uh, And People who were involved in egregious crimes stand usually as a symbol, you know, uh, to give justice to victims. That process is very long also, and many victims will pass away, especially the victims of abductions, for Mm. example, from Japan, from South Korea, especially those civilians that were 100,000, you know, taken during the war, Mm. um, Korean prisoners, right? This probably, you know, this will only be the families that will be fighting for some form of recognition of what has happened to them and memorialization of what has happened in the history between two Koreas.
0: Now, Joanna, you've been working with Citizens' Alliance for almost 20 years now. How do you keep doing it? Do you have hope that significant visible progress will be made in your lifetime?
1: Without hope, you are unable to continue this type of work, this... this Type of work is too difficult, also mentally and psychologically, you know, talking to all of these victims to kind of carry on for such a long time. Uh, without having a hope that something will change one day how it will change again it's not up to me it's a decision of North Koreans and especially of North Korean government to really start improving the situation on the ground but I do hope that my activities and activities of others empowering the victims to also speak for themselves Uh, not that me you know from Poland will be speaking for them, but actually North Koreans can speak for themselves of what has happened. And the greater, let's say, recognition in South Korean uh, society of what has happened in North Korea, if that changes, I will be satisfied as an old person later on.
0: Does the pressure from the outside on on areas of human rights inside North Korea, does it actually have an effect within North Korea?
1: Um, There are certain anecdotes that it does. And we did interview some uh, victims who said that uh, they were suddenly, you know, being uh, deported several times. They recognized that, for example, some police officers or secret police officers were saying to were asking them to sign that the human rights were not violated. Ah, so um, that was interesting to us. But this is anecdotal evidence, I yep. think. I think there are certain things that North Korea does uh, on the ground quietly. Uh, and that might lead to improvement at the same time in recent years as you know they actually the pro engagement policies resulted in the greater control over society mm. all of the laws that have been implemented in north korea are actually serving to punish people who have access to foreign information for example even much more strongly right and so i think that this is something that we also have to be careful
0: Okay, well, that's where we uh, have to finish it for today. Thank you very much, Joanna Hosaniak of the Citizens Alliance for North Korean Human Rights for talking to me on the show today.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Uh, Listeners, you can find the Citizens Alliance online at nkhr.or.kr and on Facebook by searching for Citizens Alliance for North Korean Human Rights and on Twitter at NKHumanRights. Ladies and gentlemen, if you already have an NK News account and if you're a think tank, business or academic institution, take a look at NK Pro. Our NK Pro platform offers unparalleled services, specifically catering to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. Inquire about access by sending an email to membership at nknews.org today. Our thanks, as always, go to Brian Betts and Arius Dare for facilitating this podcast, and to our post-recording producer genius, Gabby Magnuson, who I believe is a student of yours, uh, who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, etc. Thank you very much, and listen again next time.